the honest answer is some patients, you just have to not do anything because it's the best thing for them. Know your limitations. Don't create a problem or add to a problem that you can't solve or you're not going to be there long enough to solve. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with retired Army Master Sergeant John Dominguez. John talks about what it takes to become a special operations medic and shares some amazing stories and lessons learned from his distinguished career providing care in austere locations with elite units around the globe. He describes his role as president of the Special Operations Medical Society and some of the current hot topics in operational medicine, from training to treatment to future research. Find out more about John Dominguez and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Master Sergeant John Dominguez to Wardox. John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. John, tell us what prompted your interest in joining the military and how you became involved in military medicine. So um, it was kind of a family tradition. Both my grandfathers served in the military, one in the Air Force, the other in the Army. My dad's father, who was in the Army, was in World War II. He was a POW. He was a POW for about six weeks, and him and 14 other individuals escaped as they were being moved from one location to Germany in a train, and an air raid, an air raid came about. And then um, they you need for a few weeks and were able to get repatriated afterwards. And then my father was a Vietnam veteran, and he ended up retiring from the military after his year's service. So it was kind of uh, something I wanted to try doing. Did you walk into the recruiter's office and said, like, to be a medic, or did you have other aspirations? Yes. No, I walked in the recruiter's office and said I wanted to be a medic. None of my family members had been a medic. However, I liked medicine, and I figured that that would be a great place to uh, be able to be a line medic and carry a gun and uh, treat casualties. Let's set a little bit of a background for our listeners, because you are a flight paramedic and you hold that certification. You have a tactical paramedic certification and special operations advanced tactical practitioner license. Tell us about the differences in those credentials. And did you get those before your first deployment? No, I didn't. The only thing I had prior to my first deployment was an EMTB license, ATLS and BLS cards. The flight paramedic certification is designed for experienced paramedics nurses, PAs, that demonstrate advanced knowledge of medical evacuation and critical care transport. It was kind of a big thing over the years. 160th started having all their people do it. And in 2011, I took the examination at one of the Special Operation Medical Association conferences. The tactical paramedic certification was for uh, professionals that were currently providing critical care in a steer and care under fire situations and environments. And that one came about sometime in 2011, 12, 13 is when I think the research was done on it. And I think my card is like number 14 or something like that. So I was one of the first ones that got a card. And the advanced tactical practitioner license is awarded once you successfully, successfully passed the advanced tactical practitioner examination, which is administered by US SOCOM. 
and the name has changed over the years from advanced tactical practitioner to advanced tactical paramedic back to advanced tactical practitioner, depending on the trends. So you deployed to the CENTCOM area of operations in October of 2001 just a month after 9-11, and found yourself on a combat tour caring for significant casualties in the back of a C-130. How did you feel that your training had prepared you for that experience, and what was it like? My first assignment was in the 20th Combat Support Hospital. We had a great routine of doing motor pool and command inventories, not much medical training. About a year and three months after I had been in the military, I was able to get assessed and work for JSOC. And at that point, my medical training, as well as my tactical experience, exponentially expanded. And I was able to be sent down to Ben Taub in Houston, Texas, to do my first trauma rotation. We had class from 3.30 to 6.30 in the evening, Tuesday through Friday. And then we went on shift uh, seven at night till seven in the morning for a month. And... We saw so much trauma in that month. I felt very comfortable going in combat and being tested. So you had had that experience prior to your first deployment, the Ben Taub experience? Yes, I did. It's interesting because we've interviewed past guests and the agreement, I think, with some of those trauma centers, such as Ben Taub, was very near to the 9-11 time period. What advice would you give medics when they're encountering that first bolus of casualties like you experienced on the back of that C-130? Be relaxed. There's no benefit to bring an emotion to a situation that has an abundance of it already. So tell us about some of the casualties that you saw in that first experience in combat and taking care of patients. What was your most memorable experience in that first time at that C-130? There was a buddy of mine, Mike, who had a right arm near amputation. And a year before that, at Ben Taub, there was a 16-year-old girl who had the near same injury. Hers was from a roller vehicle accident. That was the most memorable. Mike survived. He was conscious. There was a lot of different injuries that day. But having gone to Ben Taub and seeing the treatment at a level one trauma center, I mean, part of that gave me more confidence knowing that I was providing the same level of uh, the same U.S. standard of care that he would have gotten at Ben Taub to include the fact that we actually utilize blood on him. And during that event, which at the time, in 2001, the, uh, the commander took a lot of negative comments for allowing blood to go forward because it was not the doctrinal way to utilize packed RBC. So that was the most memorable. So in that time period, the tourniquet really hadn't been developed to what we know of it now. You said he had a near amputation. What was the hemorrhage control maneuvers that were being done in that first month after 9-11? So back in 1998, there was an informal working group that got together to discuss Frank Butler's paper on the phases of care. From that, the Ranger Regiment, Rob Miller, had decided that we needed to have tourniquets across, across off, And we, he went ahead and we would take the ratchet straps, thin ratchet straps, and cut them. And those were our tourniquets that we carried in 2001. I wouldn't recommend it today. They work a little bit too good, especially if you have somebody that's amped up on adrenaline. And there's many, many different side effects. And now we've got some great tourniquets out there that are safe and have great outcomes with patients. So you trained as a special operations medic. 
How does that process work? Are you selected for that? And what kind of extra training do you get as a medic that you wouldn't get in the conventional forces? So you have to volunteer. Some units require an assessment prior to you attending the special operations medic course at Fort Bragg. There's follow-on courses. If you go through the SFAS selection, you'll go on to the special forces medical surgeons course. If you are in the Navy recon community or MARSOC community, you will attend the full course, which encompasses, the, for them, it's called the Special Operations Independent Duty Corpsman. If you are a SEAL, you've got the option of both Fort Bragg or they've opened their own schoolhouse. As far as Air Force PJ, they have their own schoolhouse that they're recently in or still in the process of moving to San Antonio from New Mexico. But that's the beginning. According to USOCOM Directive 350-29, there is an every two-year recertification that you need to come back to brag to go through your skill sustainment course. But aside from that, depending on the unit that you're in is and the training calendar and plan, your medical training can be in-house. Sometimes you can go to several different courses if they're available and if the timing lines up, and then medical conferences as well in order to see presentations and present yourself with some of the lessons learned and some of the data that you may have gathered on one of your deployments or through training. And some of the data isn't always medical, but it's noticing the same repetitive mistakes or flaws in care and working out ways to address them better. How much of that training was done on live tissue versus mannequins? And how do you see that training changing in the future as we develop more sophisticated technology and are able to replicate some of those things that we see in human beings that have injuries. So every, every human patient simulator that's out there to include live tissue training has a very narrow window in which it can be useful. And it all goes back to skill level and experience for medics that have never seen something bleed or have to arrest hemorrhage, it has a place. But once you've mastered the basic technique, it no longer has a place. You already know what you need to do. You can move on to cadaveric tissue and replicate what you need to be able to do and see if, if it still applies. Knowing that you still don't have, in a, in a cadaveric model, you don't have the muscle response that you would have of a normal patient. So... When you look at different types of simulators, mannequins, they all have different individual tasks that can be performed on them, but the only equal to train or to be proficient is to work on live humans. All the rest are just adjuncts that can create bad training scars. They can create some false confidence, but there is a small window for each one of them as you go through training and as you advance your level from novice to mastery of skill sets and understanding of pathophysiology and anatomy. The biggest thing is understanding how the body works and the anatomy that you're dealing with and how your, your interventions are going to have second and third order effects. How do you do that in live human training? You, you mentioned going to Ben and being part of civilian trauma centers and doing that in the United States. But how do you simulate doing that kind of care in the dark with people shooting at you with loud sounds, explosions and helicopters? How do you practice that? So I can tell you when I was a young medic prior to the war, 
We had some very seasoned physician assistants that were um, former operators. And while you were working on your casualty, they would be firing above your head and have hot brass hitting you on your neck and other places. But you had to stay on, you had to stay focused. Some people might call that hazing, but it sets a realistic expectation, smell, and try to bring as much realism as you can into the, situ- into the, the training environment. And also having a live tissue model in that scenario adds that factor of you're going to get a real response if you do not save that patient. It's hard to simulate that type of environment without having a live model. Unfortunately, the models that we have out there that can be utilized don't really replicate the human anatomy, size, weight, or reaction, muscularly or physiologically. So you opted to pursue a career as a special operations medic. And what was the John Dominguez thought at the time when he was in the 20th cash to say, I'd like to go down the special operations pathway? And then what was exactly your pathway? Mine was kind of unique. Things were done a lot differently back then. I was in pretty good shape. I played soccer in in college and I had been on the All-Army team. And through word of mouth, I was asked if I wanted to be interviewed for for a special operations unit. At the time, I thought they were talking about the Special Forces Assessment Selection Program. Turned out not to be that, but I was willing to volunteer to test myself. And so I was given orders to uh, go to an assessment. I showed up at the required place and interviewed and got, got selected. And so they were shooting hot brass on your neck at that interview as well? Or how, what was... Oh, no, that was until later. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the greatest things about being with that unit is I was exposed at a very early in my career to some of the top surgeons, top nurse anesthetists, top PAs with decades of experience. And it was funny. You had the surgeons, ER docs, and, and nurse anesthetists that were very calm, provided very detailed explanations and instruction. And you had the PAs who provided the instruction, but then put you in a stressful situation in order to test whether or not you could perform those same tasks, both cognitively and in a dynamic environment that had a lot of stimulation. So what advice would you give to someone? Maybe they're listening to this podcast and they're a medic and they're thinking, man, that special operation sounds interesting, but man, that could be way outside my comfort zone. What would you, what would you tell that young medic? You don't know if you don't try, go do it. Make that your only goal. And once you accomplish that, set your next goal and work to accomplish that. But pick your goal and focus on it and don't stop till you get there. If you come up short, there's probably a reason and you're probably meant to do something else because life has a funny way of making decisions for you because it doesn't matter how good you are. You can get hurt. You can have a bad day and that's all it takes for you not to make it through or to be not assessed favorably. So you've had multiple deployments all over the world. Tell us about your most austere medical encounter and how you handled that situation. My most austere medical encounter would be in Ethiopia, Africa. We were doing some work in the lower Ogaden region of Ethiopia along the Somali border. We were in this one village and we were 
doing a split team op. So I was in another part of the village at the time. And I got a call over the radio asking me to come to link up with the, the other part of the team because they had a, a young lady that they said was possessed. And I had to ask, like, what do you mean possessed? And they're like, like by a demon. So out of sheer morbid curiosity, I went ahead and went over there because anytime you deal with a, a female of childbearing years, there's not really much I can do. And somebody, they, one of the persons mentioned something about stomach pain and whatnot. And so I went, went to go look. When we drove up, we were using Land Rovers at the time. There was this little girl and she was tied around the waist. She was extremely dirty. Her hair was matted down. She had ungroomed fingernails, toenails. She had a pair of shorts on with a kind of like a rope for a belt that were way too big for her. She had a shirt that was kind of seemingly the same thing, oversized for her. And like I said, she had this braided cord that was tied around her waist and it went to a stake by this hut that they had that her parents lived in. And there was a trench that led from one side to the other side in a semicircle motion back to the hut. And she looked just like they described that she was kind of possessed. She would reach at you, hiss, scratch, try and try to scratch at you. They dug that little trench because that was her limit of advance on the rope. I moved, I didn't know what to do. I moved around to the left, to the right. She was able to follow my movements. She would let out some shrieky noises to kind of, I guess, try to scare you away. At that time, I asked the team engineer, his name was Clay, to go to the car. And in the glove compartment, I had two packs of Skittles, some Axe body spray, and I asked him to bring them to me. So he did. As he handed them to me, he asked me what I was going to do. And I said, probably something that's going to get me in trouble. So I sprayed myself with the Axe body spray. I got near the little girl. She swiped at me with her arm. I put some of the Skittles in my hand. I, I got her to, to swipe me again. I grabbed her wrist. I pulled it to where... She really was caught between the, the rope and my pole. I put the Skittles in her hand and I rolled her hand over them and I let go and took a step back. She moved, she smelled them, she licked them, then she put them in her mouth. She chewed them. Her teeth were very brown. I didn't know if they knew them were broken or not. I repeated this several times. I was kneeling down and I worked my way into her little circle. And as I did this, I kept giving her some Skittles and I gave her some water. Once I was in close enough to her, she climbed up on my knee because I was just on one knee because I, in case I needed to jump back or whatnot, I didn't know what she was going to do. She was going to try to bite me or whatnot. She put her hand over my face and then she hugged me and she let out these wails that were just crying. She hadn't had human contact in about eight years. Her parents had stated that she had had a high fever when she was a baby. And after that, that's when they said that the demon had possessed her. And this is, of course, being interpreted through an interpreter. And just a caveat, our interpreter, as good as he was, asked me if I could cut the, cut the collar off a cat. The cat was a lion. So not all things translated directly with him, although he did do his best. So this girl was partially blind and she was deaf. Over the next two and a half, three hours, I explained to her parents what the situation was. I took her fingers because she would. She was very calm at this point. I brought her mom in. I sprayed her mom once with the Axe body spray, and I had her rub her two fingers against her mother's two fingers. I had her mom give her some Skittles and some other food that they had. Then I brought dad in, and I did three fingers for dad while the little girl rubbed uh, her two fingers on him. I did a little patient education. I left him with the Axe body spray and told him just to spray a little bit before they fed her every day. 
and remember to go ahead and touch their hands so that way she knows who she's dealing with. I don't know how bad her loss of sight was, but she could obviously see shadows and movements. They had her tied outside and they were hoping, I guess, that a hyena or, or wild boar would attack her or take her away. But they said that she was protected by the demon. We were supposed to hit two more locations that day, but after that five-hour engagement, we decided just to head back to where we were staying. Even though that wasn't a cool trauma medicine story, not all medicine is trauma. When you look back at that, she would have had a hard time living in the U.S., let alone this remote area in, in the Lower Ogden region of Ethiopia. But at least we made a difference in her life for a little bit. That's, a, that's an awesome story. Can you take us through a situation in which you either had a casualty that had more injuries than you were prepared for or in which you had more casualties than you were resourced for? So you felt basically a situation where you maybe were a little bit overwhelmed, but help us understand how you handled that situation. So there was several times where I felt overwhelmed because I knew I didn't have enough medical equipment to treat every casualty we were getting. I think one of the one of the biggest ones was when we were in the Philippines. There was a few days that we had long engagements and we took or the Filipinos took a lot of casualties and they were being brought back and we just brought all the medical equipment we had assembled in this one area and just continuously tried to work through the casualties. And um, you ran out of the perfect bandages. You ran out of the uh, different pieces of equipment that you would use, that you would utilize. We didn't need a lot of chest seals, but we used them as tapes. So that way you didn't have to uh, close wounds with, and uh, you wouldn't have to uh, try to circumferentially wrap a, uh, a torso. I remember we ran out of suture. We ran out of a bunch of different items. We got resupplied. There was a, a sauce there at the time. And then there was a surgical team from the Philippine Army at the AOB. And they had several cases to go through. And um, the U.S. had contract air, and it could only fly during the day. And it would, could only take a certain amount of casualties back. And all the rotor wing assets from the, from the Philippine Army were being utilized to support the, the event that was going on, the offensive that they were trying to repel. At that point, we were running low on medication. There wasn't really a resupply that we could get quickly. We usually had to project things out about a month. We put an order in, we might get it in a month. There was the Philippine military was able to tap into several hospitals to utilize some of the supplies from them, which was interesting. And I had never, they would give me vials and I would have to ask them what is in here because they got them from different places. And sometimes the writing would be in a different language. And once they told me, and they told me the solution, I'd write it down. And I luckily at that point had a phone, so I would take a picture in case I saw that medication again. But the thing is, is answering your question, you just do with you do the best you can with what you've got. And you just hope that you don't ever hit that point to where you have to start improvising with utilization of clothing, furniture, other things in order to be able to create the intervention that you need. Well, let's dive in a little bit to the to the local national aspect. The allied forces that may be injured during a mission because for a u.s soldier who's injured the logistics are are straightforward right that patient is going to be evacuated in some manner back to the united states to the world's premier military hospitals 
But that's not the case if you're a local national fighter who then is going back into the local medical system. What would be your typical approach to those patients and trying to get them stable to where they can then be transferred to their local medical facilities? The honest answer is some patients, you just have to not do anything because it's the best thing for them. Know your limitations. Don't create a problem or add to a problem that you can't solve or you're not going to be there long enough to solve. There were several times where I've been deployed and we had people come in for a med ret or med cap and they would take out a cyst or do some type of minor procedure that required daily packing, washing, rinsing. And one time there was a, another little girl, she had a dislocated femur that was reset. And they're only there for a week or two with the medical team. And they leave you and the, the country with a long-term problem from their two-week engagement. And so I've seen patients get brought in that were seen at a, a med red or a med cap with a severe infection because they did not keep up or they did not follow the instructions that were given to them. And the aftercare, bandages, gauze, and whatever they gave them to, uh, to avert the infection was either taken, stolen, sold. And so uh, sometimes the best thing is not to do something and knowing when you can or cannot affect change. And uh, as we go and look at the next, at the next war, where we're looking at uh, potential multinational logistics, the same way that uh, in SOF we do foreign weapons familiarization, we need to be able to do foreign medical device familiarization and medication familiarization. Because if you're operating in, even in Europe, the medications, the dosaging, the, the packaging may look totally different and you may not speak that language, but you have what you have. And in Haiti, with that influx of all that support from multiple different countries, you saw a lot of different medication and devices that were there with no one to explain or train how to use that device. One of the special aspects of the Special Operations Forces is that the training is intense. A lot of time is spent within small units and you develop a very close bond, kind of a band of brothers. And as a Special Operations medic, you're going out with these small teams in austere locations. How do you prepare for the situation where you find one of your buddies becomes severely injured and, and you're basically their doc at the tip of the spear? Did that ever happen to you? And, and how do you prepare mentally for that? It did happen to me. It happened to me in 2001. And I, I hit my limit of advance on medical knowledge. And at that point, I made it my own personal responsibility to self-educate, utilize the mentors that I had available to me to point me in the right direction to purchase books because at that time we didn't have Google and we didn't have the ability to have audiobooks and download things. And every medical rotation I went on, I purchased several different textbooks from the medical library. And at night I would go over some of the things that I didn't know. And I would make friends with the residents or the fellows that were there at night. And being there at night, there was most of the staff had left for the day. So they allowed me to do more procedures. I had more one-on-one -on -one time and was able to 
research and go through the books and become more familiar with the anatomy and physiology of the disease process or the traumatic injury that we were dealing with. So this is interesting. We were made aware of an article that discussed your participation in the rescue of two endangered cheetah cubs in Ethiopia. Tell us this story and why was the military interested in rescuing baby cheetahs? So there was a med cap that was done and they had some press coverage and the Associated Press and I want to say it was USA Today and some other people that were down there talking about the humanitarian efforts the United States military was was doing in, in Ethiopia. We had advised them not to go to specific establishments and they went to one and saw the, the cheetah cubs fighting for uh, kind of entertainment. They wrote an article or several articles on that, and it got a lot of attention inside the D.C. area. And it became a big issue. And phone calls were made. Horn of Africa Command was extremely interested in recovering the cheetahs and after about a month of negotiation, we were able to recover the cheetahs. And once we recovered them, one of them had a partially evolved eye. It had had infection in it from being scratched, which made a very interesting call. One of the first times I used telemedicine was calling my battalion vet to ask about dosaging and drug therapy for a cheetah. In which case, my vet had a great sense of humor. And he told me, he's like, I have no idea. I'm a large, I'm a large animal vet. And I was like, great. He's like, give me some, some, some left and right limits. And I executed those and hope for the best. Uh, the next morning, the general's plane flew in with a veterinarian from the capital in Ethiopia, Addis, and a U.S. vet, which was the veterinarian that I had spoken to on the phone the day before, and some press and some other people. And they picked up the cheetahs and flew them to be placed into a zoo in uh, Addis, Ethiopia. Well, maybe it's just me, but I would consider a cheetah a big animal. That's what I was thinking too. But maybe it's a small, <laughs> maybe it's a big cat. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was a cub. It was a cub. Yeah. So you've been out of uniform for a little bit. What would you say is the greatest challenge facing special operations medics today? And what is one area that they could use some improvement? In all honesty, the uh, the biggest area that I think kind of that dropped off is being able to have more locations for access to level one trauma centers and being able to practice their full scope in the civilian sector. I was lucky in my rotation to Vanderbilt that Dr. Guy, who was the lead attending in charge of our rotation, I was in the hydro room and I'd been working there for about a day and I had a meeting with him and said, I, this is great. I've seen a lot of burn patients, but the medications you're using aren't available to me. Here's what I'm allowed to carry. Is there a way that we can, I can utilize these so that way I can actually see how much I'm going to go through if I have to sit on a patient and, and maintain it myself. He was able to get that through and we were able to use the pain management protocol that SOCOM recommended for the medics at the time, which allowed me to have more confidence in my treatment in medicating the, uh, the patient appropriately and managing the pain. And it also allowed me to get more muscle memory on the dosaging. So you mentioned that when you first had combat casualties that you were using ratchet straps, but then you had a career that spanned 
pretty much the entirety of the largest conflicts of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Tell us about how the medical approach to combat casualties changed during your career over that 15-year period of time. Well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, when you look at something like needle decompression, back in the 90s, I think we had like inch and a half was the largest needle, longest needle that we had. Nowadays, you've got three and a half inch needles for needle decompression, and you're worried about piercing the heart. With the evolution of medical devices and trying to solve these problems, sometimes we forget to update some of the training uh, behind it. And there's a difference between training and education. And the education is understanding the uh, physiology and the anatomy. I kind of use this analogy occasionally where you can, the, the first person or first thing we put in the in orbit was a, was a monkey that was trained, a chimp. But uh, he was trained to cue off lights versus actually educated on the uh, science of what was going on. So looking at other medical, evolution of medical devices and medical interventions. And it was a very interesting time to see all the theories, all the innovation that came out of this and looking at data. And one of the one of the greatest things was accumulating the data that we got that unfortunately a lot of people had to pay the price in blood of for us to obtain. But it also made me realize that data is great, but you've got to understand the environment to which that data was collected to fully understand if the data is just numbers of convenience and given the tactical situation on the ground was the only option necessary. So it's a little hard to, to, to sift through some of those aspects. And one of the things, to take a step backwards, when you mentioned about what else could the special operations medics improve on, having them educated to truly understand that studies have different statistics, different statistics that need to be utilized with that particular type of study, what type of study it is, and whether or not the methods and the variables match in order for them to make their own educated decisions on where they're going to stand on what they've read in that study. I think that's very important for people to be able to understand that there are certain biases, whether it's the patient selection or it's the treatment selection, that every study has an inherent bias that the best studies are trials that are randomized, but that can't be done in combat. And so every study that's been done in combat does have its inherent bias, as you mentioned, that I think is key for people to understand what are the limitations of that study especially when it comes to applying it to the combat casualty. So speaking of studies, you presently serve as the Special Operations Medical Association president. Tell us a little bit about that organization and what are the current hot topics? You just had a meeting not too long ago. What was, what was the, the hot thing at the Special Operations Medical Association meeting? So every year, it's a, it's a great meeting of minds. And depending on what your main topic is or focus, there, there's several. And one of the biggest this year is trying to get realigned with our international partners, creating stronger and better relationships. During the height of the war, we were conducting coalition operations. However, we all had our own individual lines of logistical supply for medical equipment. In the future, they, that might not occur. And fire bases that we were at 
if you ran low on something, you could probably go next door and ask to borrow until you got some of your own in. When you have organizations like the FDA and European Commission, you couldn't do that unless they have each other's marketing or authorized. But at the same time, it's funny because we will send people to different surgical teams if the patient needs to be operated on immediately and a, a surgical team from the UK is closer, then that's where they need to go so the patient can survive. They may not use a, a FDA-certified widget, but the patient lived. So we talked about how to get through some of those barriers to equipment and best medical practices. We also discussed blood therapy, looking at patients, because when you look at the normal age of a military patient and their, their habits, some of them may dip, some of them may take week pre-workout, they might have had coffee that morning, they may already be in a dehydrated state when they sustain a traumatic injury. So you're not dealing with a otherwise what we would consider normal hemodynamically stable patient. They may be a little bit further down on the power curve when it comes to their hydration, which eventually we're giving a lot of medication that could be nephrotoxic and adding loss of blood and now hopefully replacing it with blood makes even more of a difference because you might have some long-term post-initial surgery issues throughout your internal organs, especially the kidneys, and they end up staying a little bit longer at, uh, for their hospital stay or lose some kidney function. And for a um, 18 to 25-year-old, maybe even to 30-year-old, you get advised that you might have lost some kidney function, but you still feel great, and you might go back to your unit and you put yourself in a situation where normally you'd be able to withstand the heat, the exertion, previous to injury, but post-injury, you don't have the same kidney function and you are now more at risk of being a casualty. So who comes to the SOMA meeting and, and who's a member of SOMA? So anyone can be a member of SOMA and we have everything from people that are support NGOs to our nurses, paramedics, doctors, PAs, operations, healthcare administrators, and hospitals, small clinics, all the way through military and special operations. <clears throat> One of the soft truths is that special operations cannot be successful without general purpose forces. Special operations don't have the numbers to be able to execute missions and sustain the way general purpose forces do. So the only, so SOMA, although we do have some unconventional approaches and some perspectives that we're able to mitigate risk in and experimenting with, essentially it has to be open to everyone. So that way we can cross pollinate ideas and it, and we incubate ideas and develop them. So that way we can see which practices will work best and which skill level different practices can best be learned and sustained. But this year we had two different tracks that came up. One was the irregular warfare track and the other was the brain health track. And we are now starting to focus on a lot on brain health and looking at irregular warfare in the future and how it can be applied to the general purpose force to be utilized. You're also the executive director for North American Rescue. Tell us the history of North American Rescue and what is the purpose of this organization? So North American Rescue is best known for being a pre-hospital 
product company. Like many small companies, was it Tech Men, Men Solutions, Combat Medical, all started with individuals that were in the soft community that took what they were utilizing and making while they were medics, took it to the civilian world when they got out and were able to adapt it and utilize it and resell it back to the military and, and be able to generate it on a larger scale. And with North American Rescue, over the years, they have continuously developed the common application tourniquet, as well as several other quad-fold litter, and they've done multiple variations of that. But one of the other things that the North American Rescue does, aside from that, is look at future aspects of medicine and best practices. So in looking at what could be potentially possible in the future or impeding in the future, if you are exposing yourself to cold weather injuries, for instance, if you have to treat a patient and you've got a, a glove on that has a quarter inch to half inch insulation on it, and then you've got to depress a button on a ventilator or a, a monitor that takes your ability, you have to press an eighth of an inch on that button. Well, when you start looking at the amount of insulation in between, you may never be able to push that button. You might have to take your glove off. Well, the more and more you have to take your gloves off to be able to do an IV, to do a crike or, or a finger thor, you start losing dexterity, which means one patient might be a mass cal for you because you've lost the dexterity in your, in your hands. So how do devices and interventions come into play when you are exposed to those environments and what improvements could be made? So there's, there's obviously the medical product aspect, but there's also an innovation cell that, that is part of North American Rescue that looks at new products, new interventions, and the conditions to which they can be utilized in most adverse conditions. So there's always new products coming out on the market. And when you go to meetings such as SOMO or operational medicine, or you, you name the, the meeting, there's lots of innovative things that are being displayed that can help on theoretically help in combat casualty care. How would you walk through one of those when you were doing your special operations medic time and look and see which ones were going to be beneficial and which ones maybe hadn't quite made it to the final stages? So one of the first questions I would always ask is, is this FDA approved? If they said no, I asked which stage of development they were in, which technical level, manufacturing level, or um, development level they were in to see how soon it would end up being available or potentially available to, for us to utilize. The next thing would be size, weight, and cube space that it would take to be carried. So is this something I'm going to put in an aid bag? Is it something that's going to go in a vehicle, an aircraft, or is this something that's going to be in a fixed facility? Whether that fixed facility is a medical facility or it's a firebase or a FOB. And I would triage it from there. One of the things I would look at as well as I walk down the aisles is go through patients and case studies that would be out there. And if you ever see a panel discussion, there's a lot of case studies that are brought up. One thing that I really would like to do sometime is have a two or three tables at the back of the room. And as we go through the case studies, have people take notes and during the break, have the individuals come off the stage, go to the back of the room and pack everything. They just said that they would utilize an intervention, an aid bag and see what they came up with and if it fit and how big that aid bag would be. Because it is 
extremely difficult to pack everything you want, either into an aid bag, a belt kit, and to predict what you're going to end up seeing. There's some things you can't that are very predictable, and there's other things that are not. And with body armor and hopefully the advancements that are being looked at and coming out, we'll be able to reduce some of the life-threatening events, especially with, with helmet technology. So that way we can reduce some of the blast trauma that we, we face. So when the history books are written 50, 100 years from now, how would you want people to remember your career in military medicine? I would have to say that I'd want them to remember that each position that I was in, I tried to leave that position better than I found it. And I try to create opportunities for the generation that would follow me and make it better for them to be able to have those opportunities sustained versus them being personality driven. We've been speaking with retired Master Sergeant John Dominguez on Wardock's podcast. John, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you both. And thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to Wardock's. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Wardocs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.